0: This episode of Onward to Victory is proudly presented by WCScreens.com. As dependable as the old toss sweep, WCScreens.com is, just like your Irish, the gold standard of the industry. For screen printing and embroidery, look no further than our friends at WCScreens.com. And on with the show. Ten years ago? man. hold on, let me check my watch. Whoa, all right then. Hey, folks, you remember 10 years ago, the magical 2012 Notre Dame season? How could you forget, right? The Notre Dame football team returned that shine to their golden helmets with an utterly improbable march all the way to the BCS National Championship game. It's pretty wild, wasn't it? Even though the game itself didn't go as we all hoped against Alabama, looking back, it really did turn the tide on Notre Dame football and ushered in a new era of prosperity for the program. Now, there were many heroes on that 2012 squad, but none more famous than middle linebacker Manti Teo. I'm going to bring in my compatriot, Matt Gehring, and we are going to walk through that magical season as well as take a close look at what you may actually remember best from that year. The catfishing scheme that caught Teo in the middle of the crosshairs and the subsequent and infamous girlfriend hoax. Buckle up those chin straps, Irish fans. This is Onward to Victory. Hello Irish fans and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter.
1: And I am Matt Garret.
0: And regardless of where you're listening from, we are glad you're here for this 62nd episode in show history. We have a big one today as something of a 10-year anniversary of the season. Matt and I are going to march through the 2012 campaign with our very favorite middle linebacker, Manti Teo. But this is going to include a very heavy dose of the subplot of what many people know as the Manti Teo fake girlfriend scandal. So anyways, before we jump in, about four weeks ago, Matt and I actually literally bumped into each other at the blue and gold game at the bookstore, which was pretty cool. Uh, Though a lot of the storylines have already been touched on, Matt, we haven't really had much of a chance to debrief. Is there any big takeaways for you
1: from that blue gold game? I think the biggest takeaway for me was the storyline going into the game of Tyler Buckner versus Drew Pine. Of course, we obviously didn't get to see Buckner with the crazy injury in the goog before uh, the week leading up to the game. But I've never seen anybody play themselves out of a starting role faster than what Drew Pine did. I just he he never he couldn't click with anything. He looked slow, which shocked me after last year. He looked very slow behind center. The biggest thing for me was not being able to find our best offensive weapon, Michael Mayer, for more than three catches and 35 yards. It's the spring game. I get it. But there's no Michael Mayer is a mismatch against any defender in the entire country. And for him to only have three catches the entire game is, uh, dare I say, sacrilegious. So that was my, that was probably my biggest thing.
0: Bordering on sacrilege. So uh, Matt, do you think, uh, do you think it's the Notre Dame defense? Do you think they are going to be just that talented this year? Or do you think maybe the, the offense is, I mean, might've just come out sluggish.
1: Could have been their, their front seven looks stout. um, Which, which our front seven always is, but they're just, they were quick off the line. They were quick off the edge. No matter what we did, it was like running into a brick wall. Pine couldn't get couldn't get out of the pocket fast enough. And when he did, it did matter because somebody was there, two or three people were there. I would like to think it's, it was the defense. Um, obviously, from an offensive standpoint, this game is going to be a little bit more scripted. So the defense is going to have a little bit more of a leg up, probably. Right. But they looked fast. They looked strong. They looked like the Marcus Freeman defense that we knew we were going to get once he was going to be here for more than one year, we saw glimpses of it last year, but this is why they, they brought Marcus Freeman in as defensive coordinator, you know, two years ago. So right, if we lose a game, we're going to lose games three to nothing, six to three, nine, you know, nine to six. They're, we're not going to give up any points, Right.
0: Well, I couldn't agree more. And I think that was my big takeaway too, is that that defense looked, looked hungry and looked mean. And, like defensive coordinator, Marcus Freeman's fingerprints all over it. But it seemed like a very much a, a defensive fueled show at that blue gold game. But, you know, like you said, it's early. It's kind of like baseball spring training. Sometimes the pitching is a little bit ahead of the heading because, you know, pitching kind of has holds the information advantage in many respects. So, well, awesome. Well, hey, Matt, I I think we're both Manti Teo fans, correct? 100%. All right. So 100%. Let's lay some chips out on the table here before we go in. So I've done a little bit of digging into this Manti Teo, the 2012 season, the, the girlfriend scandal or hoax, however it is that you'd like to look at it. I have asked Matt, since we're about 10 years out, which is where, of course, you could still really vividly remember things, but they're also kind of fading into memory. I've kind of, for this show's format, for this episode's format, I should say, I've asked Matt to kind of come in fresh. I want to catch Matt's raw reminisce at various points of this, because this is all so interesting. And for those of you who remember, if you were there, you simply can't forget. But going in, Matt, would you say 10 years later that Manti Teo was truly the victim of a catfishing hoax? Or, or do you think some people would believe that he was actually quite complicit with this
1: whole thing? What, what would you say? So uh, that, that's a really good question. And if, if you remember... Right around that time on MTV, they had a show called Catfish. Absolutely. (laughs) And it was a very similar, you know, it was people that were experiencing very similar things. They brought this guy in to do research. And I think it opened up a lens into a world of deception and deceit that I know I didn't know existed. I just I had no idea that that was even a thing to see the genuine reactions of people on that show and how they were duped. I just because he's a prolific football player at one of the most recognizable institutions in the country doesn't mean that he's any more or any less of a human. So yeah, I wholeheartedly believe that he's, you know, he was susceptible to this and that he was truly catfished. So I tend to
0: absolutely agree with that as well, as we'll find out he was, kind of caught at the very end of this thing, and he might have inadvertently goosed it along, but I think that's what people, and this is kind of a narrative that we see all the time, we treat college athletes like they are professional athletes, and at the end of the day, Manti Teo at the time was a 20 to 21-year-old kid who I think personally, before we launch into this and really let the listeners decide, I think his biggest sin here was just naivete. I think he was just an incredibly naive at that point of their lives. But Matt, we've been there. We, we were sure. probably both naive as well at 2021. And it's that's how it is. So we aren't going to poke fun at him. This is not that's not the intention of this episode. But we are going to try to look at this thing as candidly as possible. And as I think we both agree, this is a very interesting saga from a human perspective. And if, and if not anything else, again, as Matt mentioned, it really shone a light on something that was far more prevalent in society than anyone would have ever realized, which was catfishing, which again, if you're not familiar with, Matt just touched on it, and we'll, we'll talk about it here soon. So uh, before we jump in, though, let's laud those folks who keep the Subway alumni train on the track, so to speak, the consensus, All-Americans. These kind folks include Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, our buddy Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio. And new to the muster roles of the Consensus All-Americans is Dr. Jeremy Scarlett, who practices in Sheboygan Falls, Wisconsin. So Dr. Scarlett is actually a Notre Dame graduate during the Lou Holtz era. I read an email that he sent last episode, and now he has actually joined the All-American list. And after corresponding with him a little further, he is someone who has a really deep appreciation around the history of Notre Dame and the history of the Notre Dame football program. So we want to thank you all so very much for keeping the lights on around these parts. And if you would like to get your name called as a Consensus All-American, feel free to visit the virtual tip jars, if you will, at paypal.me slash onwardtovictory for a one-time donation or patreon.com slash podcast. ongoing monthly support and hey a quick shout out to our pal tony strand and his team at wcscreens.com who of course is our banner sponsor he actually offered the suggestion to do this episode so i definitely have to give him some credit on the assist and i gotta say i think matt we are probably the first notre dame media outlet to cover this as a 10-year special so yay for us and if you're interested in purchasing an onward to victory t-shirt Head over again to paypal.me slash onwardtovictory and leave your size and address. The shirts themselves were actually designed and are printed by wcscreens.com. I think they look amazing, and I think you should really consider supporting not just our show, but our biggest sponsor. So again, as far as format, as I mentioned, for this episode, I've done quite a bit of research into the season, into the scandal, and I've asked Matt again to kind of come into this episode kind of raw with his reminisce. So Matt, let's get this stage set. What is it that you best remember about the 2012 Notre Dame football season?
1: It was my first real season of success with Notre Dame football. You know, we've had 9 and 3s, 8 and 4s, 10 and 2s, but nothing ever felt real. Even in the Brady Quinn years, you know the years of dare I say like the Bush push and the year after, they just it, that that year Felt different. They were winning games in manners that we hadn't won before. Notre Dame had always had a hard time of closing games out, especially if they were close going into the fourth quarter. They were known to make some big time comebacks. I think it was what 2007, where there was a three touchdown comeback at Michigan State. That's right. But they never were really able to, to to seal the deal. The you know the one game that comes to my mind that year more than anything, uh, I think it was the double or triple overtime win against Pitt yeah uh, towards the end of the season that's right. uh, some con- some controversy there with two players on that field goal team wearing the same number oh. i'll leave that be but yeah we were just we were winning games that goal line stand against stanford at the end of the season we were winning games in fashions that we had never won before and 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 That's why at that time we brought Brian Kelly in. It was a new era. He was going to do things that Charlie Weiss was never able to do, especially from a defensive side. That was the first real championship caliber football team that I had ever experienced um, as a Notre Dame fan. We didn't get the result at the end of the season, but that easily was probably top two, top three favorite seasons for me of all time.
0: It's got to be. No, you're exactly right. And you know what? I had forgotten about the pit game. I, I remember. I mean, it was just kind of bonkers. and I hate to just I hate to just march in step with this episode's theme. But honestly, for me, it was Manti Te'o, and that guy, as you remember, Matt was absolutely everywhere that season. And I remember. I don't think it was until the national championship. I don't even remember him missing a tackle. Until he got till he got there, I from memory serves he missed a couple on the uh, first drive of the game. We're like oh, we're in trouble now. <laughs> yep. But you mentioned Pitt, and then you mentioned Stanford, and and honestly, that was one of the most vivid games I can remember. I can remember just standing about uh, 18 inches in front of my TV watching that Stanford game. Yes, and it was just it was almost spellbinding. And uh, just as a quick, shameless plug episode three. So like literally 59 episodes ago at this point, uh, I did an episode about that. So if you're curious, what's the Stanford game, I don't remember, go back to episode three and listen, but I remember their defense. I I remember Golson, And and of course uh, my favorite receiver, TJ Jones was awesome, but that defense was so stingy, but everybody knew who the beating heart of that defense was. So really briskly let's cover some quick biographical information about Manti Teo here our star of the show Manti Teo was born on January 26 1991 in Honolulu County Hawaii to his parents Brian and Otilia so it goes without saying that he is an absolute stud at his high school 3.5 grade point average all state selection uh, his senior season, he led his school, which was Punao High School, to a state championship. And uh, how'd our boy Manti do? Uh, 129 tackles, 11 sacks, three forced fumbles, three interceptions, four passes defensed, 19 quarterback hurries, just everywhere. Oh, he also played offense. He rushed for 176 yards and had four touchdowns and three receptions, two of which went for touchdowns. My guess is he was probably the short yardage fullback. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Goal line package. But as you may have guessed, he was a five-star recruit. He flip-flopped on the national recruiting services, whether he was the best linebacker or the second best linebacker in his class. Matt, I got five bucks. If you can guess the guy who he flip-flopped with, on these recruiting services at middle linebacker.
1: I couldn't even, I, I can't even, I couldn't even make I, I an know. educated guess.
0: I know. I should have said 20. Not that that would have mattered, but Vontez, perfect.
1: Oh <laughs> like,
0: my. I know. Yeah. So wow. do you remember much about Notre Dame's courtship of Teo? Do you remember much from that?
1: Very, very little. I know that a lot of people because of his connections to Hawaii his closeness with his family. There was a lot of connections with USC, a ton (laughs) of connections with USC. So the fact that we were able to get somebody from the, from, I mean, the West of West coasts in the United States and pull them from, I'm not positive. You have to remind me, was he a soft verbal or hard verbal at any time to USC? I don't think he
0: he, he was no, he was no less than a soft verbal. It was a right.
1: foregone conclusion. Yeah. He
0: was going to USC. So Matt, you've hit the nail on the head. So he had tons of offers as you might guess. And of course, one from Notre Dame, but everyone close to his situation assumed he was going to USC. And this was evident by the fact that he saved USC for his last visit. We know how this thing goes, but he visited USC in January of 2009. And just to compound like the fact that nobody expected him or suspected him to go to Notre Dame. He visited Notre Dame the weekend of an embarrassing 24 to 23 home loss to Syracuse. Of course, Syracuse won exactly three games that year. Many at Syracuse have said that this is the, that was the best win in 40 years, essentially probably since Jim Brown, let's be real. But He was there on hand for one of the worst Irish losses ever. And though I, the Irish did stay kind of hot on his recruiting heels, his time again on campus, the weather was terrible for the Hawaiian kid. And of course that horrendous loss to just to kind of bring this one real quickly, full circle, Brian Pullian was actually his chief lead recruiter. So national signing day, 2009 hits And here you go, courtesy of a 2013 Vanity Fair article, quote, Teo, being the country's top linebacker recruit, is primed to sign with USC, the country's top program. Everyone agrees they're the ideal match. Right up to the minute, Teo faxes in his commitment letter to Notre Dame. This reversal rocks the college football universe, which can't fathom why a devoutly Mormon kid from Hawaii would select a devoutly Catholic university in frigid, landlocked South Bend, Indiana. A matter of faith, Teo explained. I closed my eyes and said a prayer. And after I said that prayer, everything just lined up, end quote. So our man is now heading to Notre Dame, a team that went 7-6 and the previous year. And Teo even going to Notre Dame, I mean, that was the first time he shocked the college football world. Certainly wouldn't be the last time. So 2009 was kind of a disaster for Notre Dame. The team went six and six and finally fired Charlie Weiss. Uh, T'was the day that touchdown Jesus smiled, if you will. But they lost to Navy for the second time in three years, Matt, if you remember. They lost to Michigan. They lost to USC. They lost to Stanford. So a pretty tough year 2009 was for rivalry games. But that's Manti's freshman year. He sees the field immediately and contributes greatly. It's sad in a way that the scandal, which we're going to get to, of course, here soon, is kind of the bulk of his legacy. Because as a true freshman playing middle linebacker, he plays in all 12 games, logs 63 tackles, a sack and five and a half tackles for loss. But of course, then Brian Kelly takes over in 2010. And while they don't see immediate success over those first two years, they go 16 and 10. Manti climbs up the big boards of the draft pundits with his sophomore and junior years with, take a deep breath, 261 total tackles, 23 tackles for loss, and six sacks. So for whatever reason, when I thought back in my memory banks, I think all of my Manti memories are almost exclusively of that senior year. Do you remember Manti those first three years well? As
1: a, as a as a cog in the system. Nothing nothing crazy. You heard about him early on because of how highly taught he was as a as a recruit. But nothing more than than just I, I don't want to call him a pivotal, you know, a pivotal piece to the defense. I think we were so still caught up in, in the the disaster that was the Charlie Weiss era that it took us a little bit to get over that hangover. And, and of course, you know, Charlie Weiss defense was not a priority. And by any stretch of the imagination, we, <laughs> you never paid attention to the defense during the games because we were either, we were winning games and losing games, 49 to 47 and just ridiculous games. So defense was not a priority for Notre Dame during that time. So You know, you heard his name called every once in a while, but he just flew kind of under the radar. Even so,
0: given his level of productivity and three years of really productive ball in South Bend, albeit not for great Notre Dame teams, it was still a foregone conclusion that he was again going to go into the 2012 draft. Mel Kuyper gave him a first round pick grade. And he was still considered probably just due to upside and and again, productivity, one of the best middle linebackers in the draft. He was kind of that pure middle linebacker type. So (laughs) everyone expects him to go to the draft. So perhaps the second time he shocks the college football world is when he announces in December of 2011, you know, kind of like Jordan Belford and Wolf of wall street. I'm staying. He's staying at Notre Dame. So according to Brian, who's Manti's father, this is by way of the Chicago Tribune, the day after his announcement to stay at Notre Dame for that fateful senior year. Quote, we had a long three-hour talk with him about where he felt his priorities were. We were going to use his list of priorities to start canceling out the pros and cons from a list we created. In a nutshell, Manti told me and his mother that he felt he came to Notre Dame, and I'm going to reiterate exactly what he said three years ago, that he was led to do something. He just feels like there are so many unfinished things left there. End quote. These are like the trappings of kind of an all-American kid, you know, sure. and that's kind of how he was regarded. He was kind of viewed like almost as kind of a uh, he was like kind of a wholesome character, and he's coming back because he just believes this much in the program and all of that. So let's pause on the football stuff. It, you know, we're gonna collide with this sooner rather than later, but. Let's talk about the other major subplot here, which is of course, Manti's girlfriend. So Matt, (laughs) yeah, Matt is throwing up air quotes and yes, this is true. (laughs) So using again, air quotes, Matt, not to put you on the spot, but do you remember the name of Manti's girlfriend? Lelaina. You're so close. You're close. Lene. Lene. Okay. Lene. It was something like that. Yeah. Yes well first let's bring these plot points together here really quickly as we know they're going to collide during the 2012 season anyway but sometime in the winter of 2009 Manti befriends a woman named Lene Kakua, who purportedly attends Stanford University Uh, he meets her online so she like Manti is also Polynesian and Samoan so a friendship quickly forms and There doesn't seem like there is obviously any doubt in Manti's mind of her authenticity as being a person, being a woman, attending Stanford. But according to a timeline compiled by ABC, he shared that they carry on their relationship strictly by Facebook and Twitter messaging and periodic phone calls, not in-person visits, Skype, or anything like that. Uh, We'll call them just kind of faceless interactions. And so throughout 2010 and 2011, they kind of just carry on a normal relationship, a friendship, if you will. But stripping away here, 10 years of technological advances, Matt, do you remember if it was considered odd when you heard about it that Manti had ever actually never met his girlfriend?
1: I thought it was. I, I yeah, I mean, but again, I'm not... I'm not going to pretend like I understand what it's like to be a prolific athlete. I mean, Notre Dame is one of the most recognizable institutions, but in, from a student body standpoint, it is it is a smaller university. So I'm not going to pretend to know what it's like being a big fish in a little pond. I, I I can't wrap my mind around carrying on a, a relationship, if you will. For that long without at least at minimum setting up some type of Skype call or video call or something. But again, I,
0: it's tough, man.
1: Yeah, I've ten years down the road, and it still boggles my mind how all of this went down.
0: Yeah, you're right. And here's the thing that you and I probably can't understand. And I don't want to. I don't want to paint with a broad brush here. But you also have a really strong sense that Polynesian and Samoan culture, family is really, really important. And there were people who within Manti's family who kind of had vouched, if you will, to this woman's existence and that she was, you know, a good Christian woman. And, mm-hmm. you know, that he had, Linnae had kind of befriended a, a whole network of people. And so people kind of vouched for her and you know, told Manti, this is a really nice. And so. People in the Polynesian and in the Samoan culture in particular, you know, they're very thoughtful about honoring every one of their family members. And you know, from what I was able to gather, not to say this is unlike ours, but perhaps they're just better at living this out. They think that they are a reflection of not just themselves, but every individual member of their family. So yes, if you're, let's just stop there because this is, a, here's where the bombshell gets dropped again. Uh, if you're otherwise kind of unaware of this entire thing, we now know that Lene Kakua was actually a man impersonating a woman on the internet. And the man's name was Renaya Sopo. And this is what is known as catfishing. So someone who impersonates someone who is not themselves on the internet. And so here's another thing that kind of thickens the plot a little bit. Kaku'a's existence was acknowledged by at least one other noteworthy person, and that's former Arizona Cardinals fullback Reagan Moria, who was also Polynesian. Uh, he said he met Hay in 2011 when he and a number of other Polynesian pro football players went to the islands to do some charity work. And he would go as far as to say he described he would describe her as, quote, tall, volleyball-type physique. She was athletic beautiful, long hair, Polynesian. She looked like a model, end quote. So clearly he was meeting somebody else who was introduced to him as Linnae. But as we would later find out, Renaya Tuiasosopo, the man himself was the person who introduced Reagan to this woman named Linay. So he was obviously very caught up in his own, whatever game he was playing here. We're definitely dealing with a hoaxer who's taking his job pretty seriously. Fast forwarding a little bit in January of 2012, Manti's grandfather passed away and perhaps Manti is feeling a little bit vulnerable at this point. And Lene perhaps provides a shoulder to cry on or a listening ear, whatever it may be. But either way, Manti and Lene become an official couple just uh, shortly thereafter and begin talking on the phone nearly every single night. Manti would actually receive pictures of Linnea, who who is obviously a woman who wasn't actually Linnae or Renaya, but they would talk for hours. And according to Manti's phone records that later became available that he shared, the two spoke for over 500 hours between May 11th and September 12th, 2012. Now, you may think this is all nuts, but doing the math, that's on average four hours
1: day were you aware of that matt i knew it was i knew it was a lot because i remember the they had questioned whoever manti was like living with or one of his teammates that he would be on the phone all the time and because of the time change it was at all different times of the day it was right it was insane you remember robbie toma
0: yeah (laughs) so I didn't know this until Robbie Toma was from the islands too, though, though he okay. wasn't. Yeah. He wasn't uh, Polynesian, obviously, or Samoan, but they were best buds. And he was like one of the guys who really stepped forward to really vouch for Manti say, like, yep. man, he is a victim here. Toma just kind of, he said he'd follow Manti around campus and he just kind of called himself. I am actually Manti's cameraman. Uh, I guess I'm also <laughs> a wide receiver on the team. Yeah. So the story gets a little, the plot thickens just a little bit when on, April 28th, 2012, Manti receives a call from a man who is supposedly Linay's brother to tell him that Linay was involved in a car accident. As Linay is recovering, so to speak, from her alleged uh, I use alleged very charitably here. Of course the car accident did not happen. She informs Manti in June of 2012 that she also has leukemia. So Let's just put it out there, fair and simply. At this point, if you believe Manti was the victim of a hoax here, as we do, again, you also kind of have to subscribe to the fact that he also seems to possess quite a bit of naivete, as we as we kind of said. And Matt, you've touched on it well. I mean, we can't really put ourselves, you know, as you mentioned, a big fish in a small pond. But at this point, this is when. I don't know. I think about it. I try to put myself in Manti's shoes. You have the car accident and right on the heels of that, you have the, the leukemia. I it's hard because if you're, if you're, if you've had a relationship with someone for that long, you probably wouldn't think about testing the authenticity, but what, what do you think
1: of that? I, you also have to kind of put it into perspective that everybody in the greater Midwest probably knew who Manti Tao was as a football player. Yeah. So anybody that ever tried to get close or that Manti wanted to get close to probably only cared about him as a football player. So he was probably starving for some type of companionship, some type of relationship with somebody who didn't care that he was a football player, didn't care that he was going to go to the NFL, that just wanted to be in a relationship with Manti for him and his personality, his religion, his beliefs, whatever it was. He wanted to feel more than just a football player. And I think that's why some people resort to the online dating scene, especially if you come from a small area, get out of the wall, the the small walls that you're in. So I'm not going to pretend to understand what was going through his head. I don't want to cast stones. I think that there was a ton going through his head. And like you said, the guy was vulnerable. He comes from a very, very, very close family. Mm -hmm. And when his grandfather died, That probably mentally threw him for a loop because I'm assuming, again, you don't want to assume, but I'm assuming he probably wasn't there when that happened. With him being on campus, there was probably a lot of things probably going through his head. And the fact that this person gave him companionship and somebody to talk to at at one of his lowest times, I can't imagine the type of bond in his head that that forged. So. You've got nine different things happening all at once, and I'm not going to pretend. Again, I'm not going to pretend to understand. You know what was going on in his psyche at that time.
0: Right, and. Just so it's clear, Matt and I, we, we aren't social psychologists, but we just play like we are on a podcast, <laughs> but uh, and we'll get back to the football here actually right now, but no, you're, you're exactly right. And we're talking about a very small community in Hawaii and we're not, and, and like, let's be real here. We've both been to South Bend many a times. And, and as you mentioned, going to a place like Notre Dame with like what, 15,000 undergraduates, it's not the same as going to a big tent school. It's not as big and doesn't feel nearly as big. And so we're talking about, we're talking about in large part very small communities. So, you know, the online dating or whatever it might be probably presented him with a, a little slice of outside. And I get it. But let's move on to football, Matt. <laughs> Brian Kelly, who's in his third season, and the Irish squad are looking to move past a eight and five record from the 2011 season. And the, the 2012 season begins very promisingly a 50 to 10 victory over Navy in Dublin, Ireland at Aviva stadium. I remember that one very well and a 20 to 17 home victory over Purdue. They made us sweat it out, but it's that next week, Matt, that is a date with destiny. It's September 15th, 2012. The now number 20 ranked Notre Dame cruises into East Lansing to square off against the number 10 Michigan State Spartans on the road. And this is where our stories, which we have kind of talked about independently thus far, all of a sudden will start to converge in a major way. So Manti's grandmother died on September 11th. So just four days before the game. And Manti is obviously distraught, but then he becomes even more so when he receives a call just hours later on September 12th from Linay's brother, who was hysterical, to inform him that Linnae had, in fact, succumbed to leukemia. So this was September 12th. So this is, well, four and then three days before the football game. And the very next day, September 13th, Manti tweets, quote, I may not hear your voice, but I do feel your presence. This, of course, could be for his grandmother, Lene, or both, but again, given to how much we know they spoke on the phone for the previous several months, many have deduced that that tweet was geared towards her. Quite a week already for Manti as he and the Irish head to Michigan State. The Irish upset the Spartans 20-3 to thanks to some seriously stifling defense. They only allowed 237 yards to Michigan State, who, of course, had Le'Veon Bell in the backfield that year. And Manti goes off. Uh, Twelve tackles, one for a loss, one fumble recovery, two pass breakups. If you want to hear something crazy, Matt, the Everett Golson offense went one for 14 on third down. (laughs) That's not normally the recipe for a winning football game. No, 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 no. Oh, man. But do you remember the interviews right after that game by any chance? I know we're going deep into the memory banks.
1: No, I, I honestly, I, I don't. Um, I'm not going to try to pretend that I remember that far back. I know that you have the information. I know, man. I've I'm confident in that.
0: <laughs> I got the information advantage and I, I understand. So after the game, the sideline reporter goes up immediately to Manti and asks, sure, about the game, but talk, let's talk about your grandmother. And let's talk about your girlfriend. And, and he's very candid in his responses. And the Associated Press game recap practically leads with how Manti, you know, stood tall despite, you know, a heavy heart. Do you, Yeah, the next week. So, again, this, this all of a sudden, this story is front page stuff. How this Notre Dame middle linebacker, who some probably remember eschewed USC to go to Notre Dame, Surprised everybody by coming back for his senior year. And now all of a sudden, he is an absolute star with this really, really compelling backstory. So they head to Michigan on September 18th, the next, or excuse me, September 22nd. And Michigan is ranked number 18th. Pardon me. That game was actually an epic 13 to six defensive struggle. And Manti logs eight tackles, not one, but two interceptions. When I think about that whole season, honestly, it's Manti's interceptions that stick out to me the most. And I guess I figured out why his first three years, he had zero interceptions that senior year. He had seven
1: for a middle linebacker. And I'm pretty sure from what I remember, he led late in the season. He led the country in interceptions. I think somebody like late in that year, got like two or three in the last game, ended up having nine interceptions. Wow. But for the longest time as a middle linebacker leading the country in interceptions, remember that as a stat that stood out to me. Like, wow.
0: As a middle linebacker, I mean, he just had, he he always had a nose for the ball, but man, he was just, he was just everywhere. At this point though, after after they they beat Michigan State, Benice Lansing, and then they take on Michigan and beat Michigan the next week, This is like Manti madness has officially swept the country. And according to the Associated Press, quote, many fans at just the second night game in 22 years at Notre Dame Stadium, which is kind of crazy to think about that, uh, war lays in support of Teo, uh, a Hawaiian whose girlfriend and grandmother recently died, end quote. So we're still seeing this as a storyline. And so another storyline for that particular game was the fact that Tommy Reese entered the game as, uh, for the ineffective Everett Golson. So I find this really interesting because I feel like it's receded a bit from memory, but people kind of forget that Tommy Reese was actually a pretty good quarterback
1: at Notre Dame. He wasn't your prototypical quarterback. I mean, he was your prototypical Brian Kelly quarterback. Yes. Um, but you know, being used to the the Brady Quinns and the, the Jimmy Clausens of the world I mean, even Dane Crist for a little bit, you know, he was a tall stout dude, a little bit of mobility. Reese was a very, very different quarterback, but I mean, he easily was one of my, one of my favorite players from that season.
0: Oh, I agree. Would you be surprised, Matt, if I told you that Tommy Reese threw for 61 touchdown passes, his Notre Dame career. (laughs) Wow. Right. I was looking at his statistics. I'm like, 60, I I thought he was just kind of a kind of a quaint. I know he started that year. The next year he started the whole season. Mm -hmm. I thought he was kind of a quaint backup up to that point. Right. 61 touchdown passes and 7,700 yards for a Notre Dame career. I feel like we kind of sleep on him as a player sometimes. Yep. So, but Notre Dame keeps winning and Manti keeps making plays. And for the first time in a number of years, and Matt, you touched on this earlier, Notre Dame was remaining relevant And the football pulls well into October and November. And that had not happened in a long time. And on October 1st, Manti Madness is in full swing. He's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Mm -hmm. And aside from obviously exhibiting Manti as kind of an all-American type, a family first man who's invaluable to his campus and his program, they, of course, also outline The Linnae subplot. So, Matt, here's a quote. Quote, Teo had dated Linnae Kakua 22, for nearly a year. She'd been hospitalized in California since an April 28th car accident left her on the brink of death. Two months after the accident, as she began to recover from her injuries, doctors discovered that she had leukemia and sent her to a new hospital with a daunting health issue. As Linnae struggled to survive, Teo developed a nightly ritual in which he would go to sleep on the phone with her. When he woke up in the morning, his phone would sometimes show that he had an eight-hour call, and he would hear Linnae breathing on the other end of the line. Her relatives told him that at her lowest points, as she fought to emerge from a coma, her breathing rate would increase at the sound of his voice, end quote. So obviously, these words on the page are not going to age well, but we're talking about a very emotionally charged Notre Dame team because shortly after they after this issue of SI, they go into Norman and absolutely obliterate number eight Oklahoma on the road for win number eight.
1: Hands down, to that point, the biggest win I can remember to that point that I've seen as a Notre Dame fan. Now, of course, you know, you had the 92 season, the 93 season, big wins there, but I was four and five years old. Right. (laughs) And no, I mean, that was it. I mean, you can talk about the Michigan state game all you want being an upset, but to go into a blue blood in that, that was, that was the game that season that I think every Notre Dame fan can say, like, we're for real, we're here. We are legit national championship contenders.
0: They they had a lot of close ones as we remember, yep. but they absolutely whacked Oklahoma. Yep. I'm like, tried to, yep. didn't write down the score, but I remember it, it. was
1: uh, it was thirty to thirteen. Oh my gosh, yes, yeah, it okay. was thirty to thirteen. After coming off a close win at, against BYU seventeen to fourteen, going That's... into Norman and doing that is just insanity. Yeah,
0: you're right. On November, so that was win number eight, and then two weeks later on November tenth. They beat Boston College 21-6 to for their 10th win. Again, we're in 2012. It was the first time since 2006 that they had logged double-digit wins in a campaign. Of course, this is something that we have grown very accustomed to of late, these really tidy double-digit win seasons. But when we think about this era and we think about this particular season as it fits into this era, this is what really ushered in the prosperity that we enjoy now
1: yeah that that was the, the 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 Notre Dame football that we've enjoyed over the last 10 years would not have happened if if 2012 did not I mean if, if 2012 didn't end up and really if you look at those games that are before four or five of those games could have went either way yeah I mean that was we were we were 12 and 0 going into the national championship and we easily could have been eight and four that year so totally that that gave us a national exposure in ter- as if Notre Dame needs more national exposure but no longer a laughing stock no right. longer getting to the point and then you know you said 2006 they started 10 and 0 I'm pretty sure they finished 10 to 10 and 3 because they lost three games two games in a row and then lost the bowl okay. game so right. those are the Notre Dame seasons that we were accustomed to before that
0: I think it was in the Sports Illustrated article and they're like, oh, the shine is being restored to the Golden Dome. And I think that was their words, not mine. But when you really look at it, even though some of the other words on the page about the relation it'll age well, but like that's one that like really even 10 years later absolutely rings true. So pardon me, not only is our Irish SI cover boys, but Manti is being regarded as a bona fide Heisman Trophy candidate. And it's the tackles. It's the tackles for loss. It's the nose for the football. But as we mentioned earlier, it's, it's also the interceptions. I mean, he, he, his interceptions were always so crucial. Starting on November 24th against USC, we really start going into funny farm mode here. The Irish are 11-0, and zero, and they defeat USC 22-13 to, to clinch an undefeated regular season. 12 wins, zero losses. And it is at this game that, again, we are, let's see, September, October. We're two and a half months post Linnaeus' death. Mm -hmm. If he thinks he is being catfished or if he has any suspicions, he may begin to smell a rat here. According to ESPN, quote, Teo said that he actually met Rania Tuyasasopo at the USC Notre Dame game for the first time. Uh, It was during a meeting he wanted to set up with a nine-year-old who was supposed to be Lene's cousin. In the past, he had spoken with this girl, and she was described as Lene's cousin. And Manti wanted to meet her as a way to remember Lene. End quote. So believe it or not, according to both men, he actually meets Rania face to face. This is the man, of course, that he had spent hundreds of hours with on the phone if he were to be believed, which I think we do, he would have had no idea that this was actually, he was actually meeting his dead girlfriend. And I hate to say it in such crass terms, but that's, so right when Manti is beginning the awards circuit, so to speak, fractures don't just start developing in this relationship, but kind of full blown craters. So around the same time, that Notre Dame had been selected to play Alabama in the BCS National Championship game. And Manti is picking up the Maxwell Award, the Walter Camp Award, the Butkus Award, the Bronco Nagurski Trophy, and many, many others. He actually reportedly received a message on Twitter on December 4th from a man named J.R. Viosa, who said that he actually had helped Tui Sopo facilitate the hoax. And he told him that Linnae was not real and that he had been pranked. So that was December 4th. And that was, again, a Twitter message. But two days later, uh, reputedly, while actually Teo is at a uh, Home Depot ESPN award show in Orlando, he received a call from Lene's number and someone on the other line said, hey, she's not dead. She was never real. According to Manti, he says, I just went on a rampage. Like, how could you do this to me? He said he told the person on the other end of the phone. By this time, December 6th, he is completely fully aware that the hoax was on and that he had been catfished. I can't imagine what he would be thinking now, but I will tell you that it was two days before the Heisman Trophy proceedings. And on the day of the Heisman Trophy Proceed, or the Heisman Trophy selection, this is where he actually gets himself in a little bit of trouble in hindsight. So this is December 8th, two and four days after the Twitter message and the phone call, he actually mentions Lene in an interview, does make mention of, of Lene. So of course, as we know, Matt, both of us are Browns fans. How sore were you in retrospect? How sore are we that Manti's Heisman was not mantis heisman at all it went to texas a&m freshman quarterback johnny manzel matt your thoughts please
1: well the name just like it hits the gag reflex it's true it's like a visceral reaction (laughs) hindsight yes i'm sad like i i i wish it would have gone to manti but i also very i mean i vividly remember that season from a johnny football standpoint I remember the, the Alabama game. I remember, you know, I remember that season and, and seeing all the highlights on Center with Johnny Football. So at the time, was I shocked that it would have, I would have been more shocked had it been Manti. Right. I think he had, I think arguably you can say that from a defensive standpoint and an impact standpoint, he had the most impactful season as a defensive player since charles woodson i don't think you can i don't think anybody can deny that but with what with what manzel was able to do it it shouldn't have gone to anybody else and i i actually had to like choke back the vomit there <laughs> when i said that but yeah it, it should to me it shouldn't have gone to anybody else no
0: i totally agree who could remember that scene you know when manzel's laden the Aggies over, uh, Alabama. And I remember, I just remember he's standing on the bench and he's waving a towel. Hindsight's of course undefeated. And we kind of know how he burned our favorite NFL organization. But at that point you're like, he's kind of cocky, but I like him. <laughs> oh yeah.
1: Oh, hundred <laughs> percent.
0: And you're like, he's like 18 or 19 years old. He's got acne all over his face, but he's beating Alabama. And you're like, Holy smokes, man. Who the heck is this kid?
1: Well, let's not try to throw this under th- throw this under the the rug. Us as Browns fans, we were ecstatic when they took him in the draft. Like, let's oh. not. Manziel in college was an electrifying player. An electrifying. Manti was your pros pro. Your, he was very prolific in his in his position. He there wasn't a lot of pizzazz. It was he played the position of middle linebacker the way every middle linebacker should aspire to play the position that doesn't give you flare points. That doesn't give you votes in the Heisman. So it is what it is at this point, but you can't deny it. Manziel is top five most electrifying player I've ever seen in college football.
0: There's no doubt
1: about it. You're right. A good
0: form tackle while filling the a gap. It's not quite, (laughs) it's not quite the same. So, December 8th, he finishes runner up in the Heisman, which is pretty daggone good. Cool. Not to just jog the memory banks further, but Colin Klein finished third that year, Kansas State, if memory serves. Yeah. 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 So, two days later, December 10th, Teo asks his friends what he should do regarding the situation, according to an article from ESPN. His friends say, dude, you got to tell your parents. And I think there was some trepidation. He's obviously sitting on this. We can kind of glean some of information from this timeline that he's generally aware of some, obviously the authenticity of Linnae is not just in question, but he knows. But it's now been almost a week and he hasn't said a single thing to his folks. So I think that really does shine a light and kind of gives you a look into probably how he was feeling at this point. But by Christmas Eve 2012, he notifies his mother first and then the rest of his family that he had been hoaxed. December, uh, excuse me, December 26th. So, a day we're talking about Christmas Eve and then a day after Christmas. You know, Teo notifies Notre Dame head coach Brian Kelly and a few others. Um, and the school launches an investigation that clears Teo of, of any complicity into this hoax. And they say it becomes clear very quickly who the perpetrators are, although they do not speak directly with Tuiasosopo. Sopo. Let's not forget, they're getting ready for the national championship <laughs> game. <laughs> I can't imagine having this looming large over me while getting ready for easily the biggest game, not only in your life, but obviously up to that point in program history for decades but january 7th is the national championship game and the general public is still completely unaware that any of this is going on but matt we kind of talked about it before we started the show you watch that game you could tell manti was not really manti what do you think like i guess we could we could talk about this particular game for ad nauseum and probably a lot of our recollections aren't going to be very fond What do you remember about Manti's performance in that game, as opposed to what we saw for the first twelve games? He was
1: as existent in that game as his girlfriend was in real life. Uh, I mean, they may. I mean, in all honesty, I mean, I I remember. I remember sitting in my girlfriend now wife's apartment watching that game. She knew nothing about football, and she even turned to me and was like, "What is happening?" It felt like we had ten players on the field you know we talk about the form tackle not being, you know, winning you any 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 brownie points and votes for the Heisman. He couldn't he couldn't have tackled his way out of a wet paper bag that game. W- was slow, never dropped back in coverage for a guy with seven interceptions to never be able to drop back in coverage against an Alabama team that isn't known I mean they're not known to pass so they he's probably not dropping back in coverage as much. They're known for a running game, and for him to just not be there was astonishing to me. And again, like you said earlier, the general public had no idea about any of this. First thing that came to my mind was injury. Did something happen that week in practice that nobody was really disclosing as, as being you know, any more serious than what it looked like? Was he sick? You, know, you go out on these games, you, you never know what's happening in, in terms of extracurricular stuff. So it was not the same player that we had seen the previous 12 games by any stretch of the imagination.
0: We could talk about the game and the ins and the outs of the game. I mean, I don't think either of us would lay claim or die on the hill that we were better than Alabama that year or anything like that. But it was obvious that he was incredibly, after playing so inspired all year, he was incredibly flat. And I might just be making this up in my head. It might be a piece of revisionist history, but I feel like he missed a couple tackles on like the first drive, or perhaps the first drive or two. And we really hadn't seen Manti Te'o miss a tackle all season. I remember they scored with so much ease that first drive that I'm like, we're kind of, I think we're in trouble. But I still, I'm like, we've seen this inspired Notre Dame play all year. It's gonna, it's gonna subsist in the national championship game surely. But then once you saw that the I hate to say it, like it's like the spiritual leader of the team was playing so poorly. Cool. You know, like, surely the others are going to kind of follow suit. And they sure did.
1: Well, and how much of it, too? I mean, we got to talk about relationships that are built within, within teams, right? And he was, Manti was a brother of everybody on that team. So when your brother's down and goes through something catastrophic, you got two things that you can do. You can either rise to occasion and rise him up or let it affect you. And right, wrong, or indifferent, they let it affect them. And some people would argue, well, no, they've got to overcome that. They're in the national championship. They have to be better. But again, we also forget that these are an 18 to 22-year-old young men, human beings that actually, contrary to popular belief, have feelings and, and actually care for each other on a deeper than football level. So to say that it, it shouldn't have affected them in the manner that it did, you, you only care about the result on the scoreboard and you don't care about the, the individual person. I, I can't say that I would have blamed any player for feeling deflated or feeling so down and out for a fellow teammate, a fellow brother, like, like they felt.
0: Appreciate that. That is very, very good perspective. We can treat them like football playing robots once they get to the NFL. Yep. That, that's what makes college football amazing ages 18 to 22 are are so pivotal in the development of, of your life, understanding what meaningful and healthy relationships look like. I think maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe everybody kind of saw again, their vocal leader, their brother. And he was, he was probably emotionally just burned like a fuse box. That's just like, like nothing. And probably just didn't have much left. So of course they lose forty-two to fourteen that game, if memory serves. And I think it was thirty-five to zero at one point. I mean, I know they scored two touchdowns that were pretty meaningless late, but that was just top to bottom, left to right, an Alabama route. But that being said,
1: I will still stick to my guns and say that had Ohio State not gotten free tattoos, yes, and gotten a bowl ban. That Notre Dame would have had a national championship in 2012, regardless of what happened with the Manti Te'o situation. That's not related to this. No, I want to let it out. Let my opinion be known to all Notre Dame fandom that because no- because Ohio <laughs> State got free tattoos, Notre Dame does not have a national championship.
0: Discuss this uh, before we before we got going here. I went through this entire the, the all the the bits of research on this episode, and I had totally totally forgotten about this of course we mentioned johnny football upsetting alabama that this particular year would have been enough to bounce them out of the bcs national championship game in ohio state who was undefeated that season i'm just catching everybody up to speed just in case they might have might have slipped their minds ohio state was undefeated in the regular season but they were ineligible for bowl play because of course this the tattoo gate or whatever i don't even remember what they called it but was it terrell Pryor? yep yeah because Terrell Pryor and a couple of his pals got some free tattoos in ex- exchange for like their
1: signatures or maybe a football. It was their note. gold, the gold pants from winning the Michigan game. That's the it. little gold pant medallion. They sold for free tattoos. Oh, maybe we would have been looking at a, a
0: national championship as you say. So that was January 7th. So we've got two more quick bits here. Cause I just want to talk about when the story breaks and then how we, what we think the legacy is of this whole thing. So, nine days after the national championship game. And I'm going to read it right here from the uh, ABC timeline quote, uh, Teo says to Sopo calls him on the phone and apologizes for the prank. So at that point, Teo actually fields a phone call. And if that were to make him feel a little bit better in his heart of hearts, that would quickly be stamped out because a few hours later, the online sports site deadspin.com releases an article revealing the entire scam. So there was someone on the island who actually tipped off Deadspin. Like this might've been a poorly kept secret for that month, especially within his home community. So apparently, purportedly, someone from Deadspin received a tip from someone from the, the islands that like, hey, everybody's saying about this Manti Teo girlfriend, I just want to tell you all it's a fake. If you do some digging, it's actually really easy to uncover. So someone took that tip at Deadspin and just, got permission to run with it. It was actually like a junior rider and they ran with it. And the next thing you know, there was a huge expose that absolutely just blew up. We're talking about before the, the term going viral actually becomes part of our parlance. Manti Teo was viral at 8 PM that exact day. Our buddy Notre Dame, AD Jack Swarbrick, He goes into full damage control and he says, uh, Hey, we've already, we've already looked into this and we have cleared Teo of any wrongdoing and quote, nothing that I've learned has shaken my faith in Manti Teo one iota End quote, I feel like Jack had this in his pocket for like three weeks. Like, Hey, just in case this gets out, we did our due diligence. (laughs) So Matt, we talked about this before we started. What were you, where were you when you read this initial article or you heard about this fake girlfriend hoax?
1: I unfortunately did not get to find out about it myself. I had all of my Ohio state friends. No, (laughs) just blow me up. Facebook, Twitter, text message with this article. And I'm, I'm in grad school I'm yes, I, I'm sitting in my dorm room working on stuff on my phone just buzzing over and over and over again phone calls everything and I'm like what who died like no like literally who what is happening oh, and no. I'm sitting there and I'm reading the article and I'm like immediately I was like there's no way there's no way that this is a thing and then you get reading it and then it gets on ESPN and it's on Bleacher Report and it's like okay I stop doing what I'm doing and I just I just read the article and I'm listening to ESPN at the time because I'm not much older than you know than he is. I'm I'm one or two years older than he is. My immediate thought goes to, oh, that's why he sucked in the national championship. I'm <laughs> that like that. That now. would make that makes sense. It in my my yeah. Brain. I mean that. I mean immediately that's like oh okay that makes that makes total sense. You know looking back at it now 10 years down the road i've got a kid you know you go through stuff in your own life you under you understand a little bit more you're mad at that time as a fan because you're young and naive and you're like well he sucked in the national like why like you get it but it's like okay let's let's move on but you understand you're mad at him and, and disappointed that it happened then but now you're, you know, you think more about the person, you think more about what he went through that year. And it's like any lesser of a person probably wouldn't have come out of it in the manner in which he tried to come out of it. And it, it, it it's weird how those, how you're, you know, as you get older, your thing, your, your perspective changes. But it, it to this day as a Notre Dame fan is the wildest 72 hours I think I've ever next to now that we've gone through the Brian Kelly leaving. Yeah, that's that, that Brian Kelly leaving, not to like bring that back up, but that was the wildest 72 hours I've right. ever experienced as an Notre Dame fan. Manti yeah. Teo is very much a close second.
0: That's really good perspective because Manti's 72 hours around January 16th, moving forward, 2012 was absolutely nuts, but. You're right. We thought the whole program was heading down to Baton Rouge there for a minute, but that's why we're doing this. You know, it's good to contextualize this because it's just one of those things that looms. I just feel like it still looms so large. And like you, I, I remember I was uh, I was working at the Richmond family YMCA, which was my first kind of real ish job after college. And I was sitting in the wellness center there, the, the weight room. And I had a little laptop and I was an ardent reader of deadspin.com. And right as I opened it up and it was like, bam, front page. And I'm like, man, Titeo's fake girlfriend scandal. I just happened to look up because it's a gym. There's TVs everywhere with sports on. And it was on the TV. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And I dug more into it. And I was like, this can't, this, this is the veracity of Deadspin." has only been put into question because they're kind of pot stirrers at the time. They were very much pot stirrers. So like my first thought was like, this can't be real. Like dead spins off their rockers. Like, and then you're like, Oh dang, this is real. ESPN's picked it up. And the next thing you know, you know, Rania Tuyasasopo is on Dr. Phil Uh, Manti Teo is on Katie Couric's show. You know, she's asking about his sexuality and you're like, what is going, like, it was like the world went nuts. And then of course, just when we think about the legacy of this, I mean, first of all, you gotta believe it kind of hurt him a little bit in the upcoming draft because he fell to the second round. As you, you remember, he
1: went to the Chargers early in the second round, but he was a yep. presumed <clears throat> first rounder. I don't know if it's hindsight. I don't know if it's because of how his pro career went. I'm 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 biased with it. He was undersized, you know, six one, two forty five coming out of college. Yeah. Not very fast. Got a lot of his tackles because we played, we played against a lot of teams that were running up the gut. You know, he he had a lot of those tackles at the line of scrimmage. Yep. You know, you say you see seven interceptions, so you think defensive back speed, but a lot of those interceptions he didn't have to move. It was bad quarterback play. It was a guy trying to throw it on a crossing route and did see Manti there because he dropped back in coverage. Right. Um, on some disguised routes. I mean, they played him beautifully for that. Again, I, I said it earlier that he played the position how you want it to be played, but I'm not necessarily sure, scandal aside, that his physique and his skill set would have transferred to the NFL in a first-round capacity. We said that Kuiper had him as a first-round grade. Nobody knows anything about anybody in the NFL, really, until they get in there and they actually do the work. Yeah. Um, I think his NFL career panned out just about what it would have, regardless if this happened.
0: I agree. And he had some good seasons and he he was a for most of his career, a serviceable middle linebacker. But he was also, as we all know now, the type of middle linebacker he played and played at the time and then transitioned into the NFL with. We know that that actually is kind of obsolete in this game today you expect your middle linebackers to be a little bit more versatile a little bit more athletic and I hate to say it like Ooh. that but that's just that's just how it is so as we reflect then on what it is the legacy of this whole thing and I don't even know if it can be encapsulated in a sentence or two how would you encapsulate the legacy of Manti Teo's Notre Dame career in a sentence or two
1: well, not just from anti I don't think anybody should be categorized with something that happened over a 72-hour span in sure. terms of how the story broke, right? It's everybody makes mistakes, and not to say what he did was a mistake. He was he was on the receiving end of some unfortunate things. I think his legacy is what it is at Notre Dame. He's, he's one of the top players to ever come out of the university. He helped put Notre Dame football arguably back on the map in a lot of ways, especially with the 2012, <clears throat> I think that you, as an I think as Notre Dame fans, we should look back with thankfulness and, and gratefulness for what he brought to the table and the type of person that he was on and off the field. He never really got into trouble. This really wasn't getting into trouble. You know, he wasn't, you know, a drug problem. It wasn't like, you know, a Devontae Neal or a Michael Floyd situation where he right. was, they were doing stuff as some extracurriculars off the field. He was, you know, cause I was a college coach. Albeit not in football, but I was a college coach. Right, what he brought to the table from a leadership standpoint and a mentality standpoint is what you want all of your players to be like. He's the pros pro of college football. Yes. So I don't think there there's going to be people that are going to judge him for it, and I think that's so unfair. And um, there's going to be people that are going to think that his legacy is tarnished and. Just remember, in a lot of ways, had he not done what he did in 2012, I'm not sure that we're having a lot of the conversations about the state of Notre Dame football uh, today if if that didn't happen.
0: 100% co-sign on it, and actually you said it in a more eloquent way than I possibly could have, and his efforts and that whole 2012 team's efforts, honestly – you know, it's our current offensive coordinator. It's it was Everett Golson. It was TJ Jones. It was it was to it. It, it. They had they had so much talent. You know, they really banded together clearly because you don't win the way they won football games that year by accident. You don't. Like you can't. That's exactly how you have to look at it. That 2012 team ushered in this era that we still enjoy today. I hate to sound cheeky, but this is what I said at the top of the show. You know, Manti was the heartbeat of that team. And that's his legacy. People look, oftentimes, they want to couple college playing legacy with your NFL legacy. You know, you can decouple those things very, very easily. Yeah. But he was a fantastic player, a Heisman runner-up as a defensive player. That's not common. But you're right. I think part of it is the legacy, unfortunately, is unfair. I think about my, my, my younger brother, Adam. He played a, he pitched a summer with the Florence Freedom uh, of the frontier league down in Florence, Kentucky, you saw this and it was kind of heartbreaking, but like you got, I guess you understood it. You know, when you get butts in the seats as a small professional team, they had Manti Teo girlfriend bobblehead night, which of course they gave away empty boxes, uh, to all the fans. And they even had a Manti Teo girlfriend seat, which was like velvet roped off and nobody sat there. Of course. It hasn't tarnished his legacy, but unfortunately it it didn't it kind of flipped his narrative a little bit yeah. to where it should not
1: belong. He will always when you when you say Manti Teo, unfortunately enough. Now for Notre Dame fans, it might be different. The controversy and the story with this will always be the first thing that people talk about. It yeah. Will always be what he's known for. And that's to me, that's sad. We can joke about it. Right. You know, it is what it is. It's unfortunate, but I mean it is. You know, you could say, say a storied career, but really his career in Notre Dame was defined by 2012. To have this distraction does such a disservice for what he's, what he's done for Notre Dame football.
0: I think we have adequately covered this topic, Matt. I think, we done, I think we did a really nice job. I hate to pat ourselves on the back, but one of our charges here tonight was to really tackle this in perhaps a more thoughtful way than it has been you know coming up on the 10 year anniversary of this very special team led by this very special player uh, i think we did just that so i hope everybody enjoyed that so again feel free to head back into the show archives and listen to any one of the previous 61 episodes head over to onwardtovictory.blog there's going to be a new memorial day piece that is going to be really really awesome i hope y'all enjoy it so make sure you bookmark that website and visit it frequently but for now I guess we should probably sign off. You really enjoyed this episode. So this has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And in kindness, I'm your host, Alex Painter. I'm Matt Gary. And as always, friends, go Irish.